Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me from DC's Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Oh, it's pretty good. Just struggling through allergy season, but otherwise <laughs> uh, being entertained by, you know, all the things that are happening at the Supreme Court. We're, we're all a little nasally, I think, so apologies to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, but today was kind of nice to see a new lineup at the Supreme Court. It was kind of a funky 6-3 to three ruling in an immigration case. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this one before, Natalie, but Justice Gorsuch, he writes a majority opinion, and it's joined by his fellow conservatives, Thomas and Barrett, as well as the three liberals. But in dissent, we have Kavanaugh. He writes a dissent, and it's joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. So that's kind of a new one, right? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, no, I don't think we've seen this one before. You're right. Um, so, so can it, can you kind of break down just how this split happened? Yeah, basically, this was a big fight over between the two self-proclaimed textualists on the court. You have Gorsuch writing the majority opinion, um, and you have Kavanaugh writing the the primary dissenting opinion. And they're kind of battling over how to read this phrase in the immigration code that involves what's called the stop time rule. And this is a pretty complicated concept in immigration law, but it has, you know, real meaningful impacts on the ground. And it determines in, in many cases whether someone can actually apply to stay in the country um, who's under deportation orders or whether they're automatically deported. So let me just give a little bit of background here. Okay. And that, and that is that so immigrants can be eligible for deportation relief. They can be eligible to cancel their deportation orders if they show 10 years of continuous presence in the United States. But there's this rule. It's called the stop time rule. And it says that, you know, when you get a notice of a peer, a notice to appear in removal proceedings, that 10 year period, the clock basically stops. So in this case, um, the petitioner, Augusto. So like it's a timeout. It's, yeah, it's a it is a timeout. Okay. So let me give you an example of how that works in the real world, and that is this actual case. So the petitioner, Augusto Nis Chavez, he is in the country for eight years when he gets a basically notice from the government that he's being placed in deportation proceedings. Um, and then two months later, he gets another notice telling him the time and place of the deportation hearing. So under the stop time rule, once he gets that notice, um, the, the clock stops. So now he's only completed eight years of continuous residency and therefore is ineligible for canceling his removal. Are you with me? Okay, I'm with you, except so he got the notice. So why is this an issue? This is an issue because Nish Chavez is arguing that his notice was defective um, because it was spread out over the course of these two separate letters in the information contained therein. One, the first one announcing the charges against him and his removal orders, um, and the second one announcing the time and place of the actual hearing itself. And so the Supreme Court in a 6-3 to ruling today, it agrees with him, and he says that the government under immigration law is required to include all the relevant information in one single notice to appear. That's the only thing that's sufficient to trigger the stop time rule. It's a little bit complicated, but it was fascinating to see the justices come to such different conclusions over the seemingly like, you know, administrative thing, right? So it is a complicated case, but like at the end of the day, essentially, like what they're saying is that, you know, it's supposed to be one notice you sent to, you messed up and too bad, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what's kind of funny about this case is it comes down to basically 
the word A, right? So the statute says it's A notice that stops the, the clock here. And Gorsuch writing for the majority says, A, you know, that's a singular article. So you're supposed to contain all this info in one letter. Kavanaugh says that, you know, the statute actually defines notice as written notice. So it could be over two, three, however many letters, as long as all the info ultimately gets to the immigrant here. But I think what's, you know, what's important to remember is that these like very technical decisions like this, you know, they have real immediate impacts for you know a lot of immigrants in the immigration system who now could suddenly as a result of having maybe received two letters as opposed to one can be eligible for um you know automatically excuse me can be eligible for canceling their deportations and staying in the country as opposed to automatically being deported definitely a deeply impactful case um and i think that's in line with a lot of what was coming out of the court this week, uh, there was a lot orders, opinions, arguments. Um, I think we should next talk about some of the cases that the court took up this week. Um, there is a major Second Amendment case now on on the lineup for next term. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to kind of chat about that one a little bit? Yeah, this one's really big. In fact, it's the biggest Second Amendment case the court has taken up in a decade plus um, since, you know, the landmark D.C. versus Heller decision in 2008. So this one's called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. And it is essentially a case over whether people have a Second Amendment right to carry guns in public. Um, At issue here is New York State's licensing scheme for concealed carry. Uh, So a gun rights group is basically challenging the whole regime that New York has set up to give people concealed carry licenses, which is actually incredibly difficult to get in the state of New York because uh, the state actually only gives carry licenses to individuals who can show proper cause. And over the years, courts have construed that to require individuals to show that they have a special need um, to carry a gun for Self-defense and the gun rights group here says that the state is making it virtually impossible for the ordinary law-abiding citizen to obtain a license. So a big uh, case here that we're going to be looking out for next year when it comes up for oral argument. And some big names, right? That I I think we'll be we'll be seeing with this case. Absolutely. Um, the petitioner's counsel, Paul Clement, he's represented um, gun rights groups in recent cases before the court. And in fact, he actually was also the attorney who argued for the, he was the solicitor general at the time that the D.C. Heller decision was um, being argued when on behalf of the Bush administration, they were backing the challenge to D.C.'s handgun scheme. So let me just back up a little bit and talk about where we're at. So I mentioned the Heller decision. So in 2008, in the Heller decision, the Supreme Court holds that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to keep a firearm at the home for purposes of self-defense. And they strike down D.C.'s handgun ban. Um, But kind of crucially here, the court doesn't explicitly go beyond that and say that people have a right to carry the gun outside the home. And so this is something that's been percolating and litigated in the lower courts for the last decade plus, is whether or not people actually have an individual right on the Second Amendment to kind of walk around with a gun. Um, and, you know, this has been a top priority of gun rights groups um, in the litigation that they've been file- filing in the lower courts, and the lower courts have reached different conclusions in the absence of any clarity from the Supreme Court here. So a big kind of marquee case, this would be, you know, a huge, obviously, expansion of the court's Heller decision, um, and it would put in jeopardy a lot of different licensing schemes and state gun measures across the country. So 
we're going to be uh, keeping a close eye on that one. Yeah, also um, coming to the docket per Monday's orders is another case um, that's revolving around state secrets and the CIA. So the, the court has agreed to hear uh, Guantanamo Bay detainees bid to compel CIA contractors to release information about his alleged torture in U.S. custody at CIA dark sites. Um, as you can imagine, the government is arguing national security risks with the disclosure of this information. Um, so there is uh, a lot of questions here uh, revolving around, you know, just what outweighs, you know, the, the 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 sensitivity of national security risks and the 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 need for this information to be disclosed. Um, the case is coming out of the Ninth Circuit, where a split appeals court had revived the case, saying that a lower court should have determined whether it would be possible to separate sensitive national security details rather than just you know quashing the subpoena altogether. Um, so I, I I think you know. Ex- this is another one that we'll be having high on our radar. Absolutely. Some some interesting cases there that the court took up. But I want to talk about oral arguments at the court. There were some pretty interesting cases argued this week, including some First Amendment cases and some energy cases. I want to take on one of those First Amendment cases, Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. And this is a case that involves kind of the very accessible question of whether or not schools can punish students for speech that takes place online. I don't know. It seems like this one's going to have some massive repercussions. I was about to say big topic, especially with, you know, all the kind of online bullying you hear about, you know, that's such a big issue, uh, schools across the country. So, so kind of what, uh, what got us here to this specific case? So this case centers around a 2017 Snapchat post. Um, It was uploaded by an angry junior varsity cheerleader in Pennsylvania who didn't make her school's varsity team. So you can imagine she was pretty upset. Um, She did not make the varsity team um, going into her sophomore year, whereas an incoming freshman did make the varsity team. So you can see how that was pretty unfair, right? Because she was under the impression that you had to do a year of JV before you made varsity. As a former cheerleader, I feel her pain, but... So what happened? (laughs) I did not know that about you. So this will be an even more accessible case. So she was upset and she goes home and over the weekend she uploads a picture of herself um, with a friend to Snapchat and she's, you know, flipping the bird and she uploads it with the profanity laced caption. I won't read it, but you can use your imagination. F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. Yes. Oh, no. So, you know, Snapchat, right? I don't know, Natalie, if you're on Snap. Um, I think I maybe downloaded it, but I, I don't, I've never really used it. Anyway, the, the whole selling point is that um, posts will auto-delete after 24 hours. So, you know, uh, Levy here thinks she's in the clear, um, but not so. Um, There's uh, that it, screenshot it, function that exactly. like, people keep forgetting about. <laughs> Did, uh, yeah, she was undone by the screenshot um, function where someone had basically an a copy of the photo basically made its way back to one of the cheerleading coaches and um what do you know she gets suspended from her team for an entire year now Ooh, wow yeah so but she does not take it lying down in fact um you know her family together with the ACLU they actually bring a federal lawsuit under the first amendment basically saying that the school was infringing her constitutional rights when it punished her for you know, a post that she had uploaded to her Snapchat off campus, uh, off school hours, um, things like that. In the Third Circuit, 
eventually agreed with her and said that the school didn't have any authority to punish her um, for her off-campus speech. So basically, this you know case of the angry cheerleader has set off a Supreme Court showdown. You know, with uh, high-powered lawyers and you know dozens of amicus briefs, and the court heard um, oral arguments on Wednesday um, about whether or not that Third Circuit decision should stand. So I know this case also seems to involve a, a long-standing Supreme Court precedent. Um, can you kind of tell us how that weaves in here to this very, you know, contemporary issue? Yeah, it's interesting because the Supreme Court does hasn't really had that much to say about the issue of, in fact, nothing really to say about the issue of school authority to punish people for like their social media posts. Whereas you would think that's such like a, a huge topic with millions of, uh, you know, high schoolers and middle schoolers around the country. But alas, the main precedent on this issue actually dates back to nine, 1969. It's the case called Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District, where the Supreme Court then held that uh, schools can, in fact, interfere with student speech that causes a substantial disruption. Now, to kind of remind you of how long ago this was, this actually dealt with whether, um, you know, the school could punish uh, students for an anti-Vietnam War protest on school grounds where they were wearing like a black armband. So basically, this case on Wednesday dealt with whether that Tinker decision, which gives the school that authority to punish disruptive speech, whether that applies off campus as well. So now you have um, a decision a ruling by the Third Circuit that's obviously a victory for the student here. Well, an attorney for the school district, Lisa Blatt, you know, a high-powered Supreme Court lawyer from Williams and Connolly, she argues that, you know, when it comes to the internet, things like time and geography are meaningless, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say that the same speech is somehow within the school's regulation if it's one foot on campus or one foot off campus at the Starbucks or at the CVS or in your car. And so she's basically saying that the Third Circuit's ruling here is unworkable. You know, schools need the authority um, to be able to punish um, a disruptive speech that occurs online and off campus. Now, you can imagine that there's uh, kind of an equally compelling counter argument to that that was presented by the American Civil Liberties Union, um, their attorney, David Cole, who says that, you know, the internet is super important for kids, that they have the right to speak freely. And that is where kids are speaking nowadays. And he says to, to, to speak to their friends, they share their most intimate thoughts on the internet. And if anytime they can do that and somebody in school might read it and regulate it, basically, he says, kids won't have free speech, period, quote. Um, and so the justices are struggling with this mammoth question that has immediate consequences for so many millions of students. And the justices are, are worried that, you know, they might adopt the wrong standard. And Justice Breyer is saying, like, you know, I can't write a treatise on the First Amendment in this case, and I'm frightened to death of writing a standard because you can imagine that whatever they say um, could potentially hamstring the ability of students to, you know, express themselves. Like, that was a big part of the oral arguments was so many hypothetical after hypothetical raised by the justices about, like, well, can a, can a school punish a student for saying X, saying Y? Like, where where does where's the line between, like, for instance political speech that's protected by the First Amendment and this, I guess what I'll call tinker speech, which is this disruptive speech. Like when does political speech become disruptive speech? And that's the kind of unenviable job that the Supreme Court has in this case is to try and, you know, kind of thread that needle a little bit. 
Yeah, I, I find the geography component of it that that argument so compelling. Um, because then, then, then you 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 start to think about like, well, what if what if they put it on the internet, but they're on school grounds when they do it, <laughs> like, and and you know, it, it's. I don't envy the justices on this one um, because it does sound like they will have to come up with a test. I mean, look, anything's possible, but it sounds like they have to figure out a new bright line here. I mean, I, I, it makes me just think that like the kind of silence that we've had from the Supreme Court over the last decade that, you know, these apps and these websites and, you know, the internet's been around for decades at this point. Um, it makes me think that that's not really a coincidence and that the justices don't really feel like they want to go out of their way to start, you know, saying, telling schools what they can and can't punish it. Like they don't seem to really want to be up for that job, but there was kind of a, kind of a moment of levity, I guess I'll say, you know, amid all this heady conversation around first amendment principles, you had Coach Kavanaugh, I'll call him. Uh, he shows up in the <laughs> hearing. It was it was Coach Kavanaugh that showed up to to Wednesday's hearing in the case, as opposed to Justice Kavanaugh. And he says, you know, didn't the coaches kind of overreact here? And he talks about his experience and his vantage point, actually being the coach of his daughter's basketball team, and understanding that you know kids need to be able to blow off some steam when they're talking about some of these. Um, issues around getting cut from their cheerleading team or basketball team, et cetera. So we have a, a clip uh, of the of the quote here from Kavanaugh that I think is entertaining. And it even includes a little brief mention to Michael Jordan. My reaction when I read this, uh, she's competitive. She cares. Uh, she blew off steam like millions of other kids have when they're disappointed about being cut from the high school team or not being in the starting lineup or not making all league. Uh, and just by way of comparison about and to show how much it means to people, you know, arguably the greatest basketball player of all times inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009 and gives a speech. And what does he talk about? He talks about getting cut as a sophomore from the varsity team. And he wasn't joking. He was critical uh, 30 years later. It's still... It still bothered him. Uh, and I think that's just emblematic of how much it means to kids to make a high school team. It is so important to their lives. And coaches sweat the cuts and it guts coaches to have to cut a kid who's on the bubble. And, and good coaches understand the importance and they understand the emotions. So maybe what bothers me when I read all this is that um, it didn't seem like the punishment was tailored to the offense. So as you can see, um, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, bringing the Michael Jordan references to Supreme Court oral arguments, pretty much confirming what uh, Kagan told Kavanaugh after he replaced Justice Kennedy on the court, which is that there's been a significant increase in sports talk and a significant decrease in Shakespeare analysis. I think it's fair to say Kagan was pretty much spot, spot on with that one. But Natalie, I think that pretty much does it for us this week. Um, it was a pleasure talking about all these fascinating cases. And we're probably going to be back with some more opinion conversations, if not next week, then in the coming weeks um, with more episodes as we get closer to the end of the term. Yeah, things are, are sure to keep um, keep popping <laughs> for, for the next few weeks. Uh, but yeah, it was, it's been great, Jimmy. 
And thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and contributing reporter, Daniel Wilson. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. And thanks for listening. 